everyone, and welcome to the Wharton FinTech Podcast. I'm your host, Miguel Armasa. Today, I'm joined by two great guests, Brooks Gibbons and Gareth Jones, managing partners and co-founders of FinTech Collective, a global early-stage venture capital firm focused on technology startups with the potential to reimagine financial services. Brooks and Gareth actually go way back and met in their 20s and together have helped build, scale, and sell four fintech businesses. We talked about their entrepreneurial background and why they eventually decided to switch from operators to investors, challenges of launching a fintech focus fund in 2012, their decision to invest beyond the US and why they are excited about fintech in Latin America and other emerging markets, why they are particularly proud of their weekly newsletter, their investment strategy and what gets them excited to invest in a startup, and a nice story of how they helped launch our very own Wharton FinTech Club almost seven years ago. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Brooks and Garrett. Well, Brooks, Garrett, thank you so much for joining us on the Wharton FinTech Podcast. We're definitely excited to have you here. Maybe we can start by hearing a bit about your backgrounds and, and how you got to uh, your current roles. And maybe just we can start with Brooks. Miguel, thanks for having us. And we've been a longtime supporter of the Wharton FinTech Club. We were sitting co-pilot in 2014 when Steve and Daniel McCauley started this thing up. So we're glad to be back today. We are Coming in from our office in New York City, which has been open since the beginning of September, we're based on Union Square. So we've got about half the team cycling through the office on, on any given day. To get to your question of um, sort of background, I am the American. You'll hear from my partner, Gareth. Oh, yes, you will. <laughs> He's got a slightly different accent. We have been hanging out for over 20 years together in this early growth stage tech space. I grew up in South Carolina. I'm a classic product of the and proponent of the liberal arts system. I went to Williams College, graduated with a degree in history, so trained to do absolutely nothing, and was quickly turned into a, an enterprise software developer. Did SAP software development for a few years before joining my first tech company at the age of 25 or 26. But let me pause there. I'm sure we'll unpack some of that as we go on. Uh, I'm Gareth. And as you can tell, yeah, I'm the Brit uh, on the team. I've been in Brooklyn now for, well, I've been in New York actually for close to 17 years, but um, I've managed to cling desperately onto the, uh, to, the Brit, to the Brit accent. I grew up in central London, grew up in Islington. So pretty interesting that Hoxton or parts of London where all the hipsters seem to be building tech businesses now was... Uh, was off limits as a kid. My parents were horrified if I ventured into that part of London. So it's kind of fun to go back now as a VC to see that. But that was my, that was my stomping ground. That's where I grew up. And uh, went to university in the UK, trained as a building surveyor, because you can actually do that in, in the UK, but never managed to get to practice that craft. Graduated into the teeth of a pretty filthy recession in 94 and uh, actually found myself working for Panasonic on their graduate program. So that was kind of my first foray into the world of tech. Um, obviously had huge ambitions to be running some just-in-time manufacturing plant for TVs somewhere in Indonesia and 
ended up selling photocopiers in Northwest London. So got schooled in the art of business there. And then about 15 minutes into that, I uh, was actually tempted away by my cousin to go sail a 36-foot catch, double-handed to Antarctica and back uh, from the UK. And uh, that lasted about three and a half years and landed me back in London in the late 90s, entirely unemployable. But luckily, the internet was there to rescue me. And, and actually, that was, that was my f- really my first and last interview, uh, was meeting Brooks. Um, we've been, as he said, hanging out ever since, building scaling and selling fintech businesses and made the leap age 40 in 2012 to go start becoming becoming investors and backing the generation really behind us that are going after some really big and important problems in in this industry that we've grown up in fascinating and i want to hear more about that uh, <laughs> that antarctica trip uh, later down this uh, interview but let's uh, let's talk a bit about your transition right from entrepreneurs, operators into into VCs, you know what? Why make that transition? Why not continue operating or, or building companies? Yeah. So if you wind the clock back to 2012, we were a few years out from the global financial crisis, and for us, that really provided the context for starting the firm. You know, two things weren't a thing in 2012 at any degree of scale. One was fintech. There were exactly two references if you Googled it. One was an alcohol payments facilitator based in Florida that helped to enable state-to-state payments for alcohol distribution industry. And the second was a systems integrator in India called Fintech Systems Limited. So we didn't coin the term. I think that gets, I think City gets the credit for that in like 1997. The other thing that wasn't a thing was VC and Fintech. There were a handful, it was really a cottage industry. There were a handful of GPs, not very many, if any, dedicated investors to the space. Most of them were were later stage. FTV was one of the first. And FinTech accounted for, at that time, about 2 to 3% of total, total venture dollars. So I think as, at the time, as, as Gareth mentioned, we had, at that point in our careers, helped to build and exit four different businesses in and around software and data and financial services. Three of them we had worked on together. And so we literally took a day out, got in front of a whiteboard in June of 2012 and started painting a picture of what we thought the industry was going to look like at the intersection of finance and tech for the next 20, 30 years. We got ourselves pretty excited by the end of the day that we were coming into a wave of company building and and we started to go out and you know we did the classic sort of startup approach of go find 100 people to talk to and very quickly built a pipeline of CEOs who were starting businesses. And one of the most interesting things was that even compared to the operating companies that we had just come out of, at that point in time, these CEOs that we were meeting were moving even a step function faster than we had been able to. The whole capability to swipe a card and access infinite compute be able to access talented resources in any part of the world was really accelerating. And so it gave us the confidence that we were onto something. We had always spent time in early and growth stage companies. I was officer of a publicly traded company, so we've seen it all the way through to, to IPO and exit. But we really loved the early and growth stage space. And so we built a pipeline very, very quickly. We had a bunch of, <laughs> we had about a year's worth of conversations about 
what form. We didn't start life wanting to be venture capitalists. We really thought about the opportunity set and what we thought we had that was unique to bring to that. And it turns out if you're that age and have had multiple successes building companies through really good times and really challenging times, have a perspective on the market, have a really dense network globally. It turns out if you add capital to that and you want to build companies, you're a venture capitalist. Oh, Miguel, it was pretty funny. I, I remember talking to a very talented entrepreneur who will remain nameless. He wasn't particularly well known when we met him. In fact, he was just getting started. But I remember Brooks announcing to him that we were indeed venture capitalists. <laughs> and uh, this is well before we had a fund. And of course, I was just horrified that we'd made the leap into VCs purely over just a, a sentence. But that's what we were. And we leapt in with both feet. And uh, it was actually someone close to us who gave us the advice of, if you think this is what you want to do, then you not need to start putting capital to work. And so that's what we did. We started investing, started investing our own capital. Assuming that's also the way you updated your LinkedIn profile. Actually, no, I, I didn't. And then when I did, I got thrown out of Soho House, which is another story. <laughs> that's, uh, that's true. That is very true. Less, lesson Our to first, self. Yeah, lesson yeah. to self. Don't update. <laughs> or don't always update your LinkedIn profile. It's not helpful. We have, I mean, the name came about after about a year, almost a year and a half of, of doing all of this. And we had cycled through a bunch of sort of, you know, stealth names and we did what every process needs, which is we got in front of the whiteboard, gave ourselves 40 minutes and the end of that came out with the, the highly functional name of FinTech Collective. I don't think we appreciated at the time, collective was intended to mean, like when we looked out into the venture space, particularly in that era, a lot of firms were sort of about these super ego individuals, not necessarily ego, but super individuals. And we really felt that bringing the full network of people and talent that we had worked with for so long, that was global in nature could be really powerful. And that's where collective came from. I don't think we appreciated that Others would see that and have no idea if we were a fund or some socialist social, experiment. Socialist experiment. <laughs> but if you look at the time, and at that time, our first two investments we made out of our own capital in early 2013, and were two New York based companies that have gotten to some level of recognition. One was Reorg, Time Reorg Research, founded by Kent Collier, and the second was Reonomy. Kent went on in five and a half years off of raising a million dollars in capital to sell the business to Warburg or a majority of the business to Warburg as reported in the FT for an estimated $400 million. I don't think Gareth and I have ever seen a classic capital markets institutional investor oriented data and information service get built with that scale of velocity. Kent is just a, a machine. And Reonomy is a, is in the commercial real estate space, data and analytics platform, also based in New York, and is doing super, super well. Yeah, we actually have Rich from Reonomy. Oh, good. Of course, he's an alum. Yeah, he's coming up in uh, two to three weeks. Actually, no, two weeks. Too. Good. So it's Great. coming up very soon. I'm excited about that one. But let's talk about the challenges of launching a VC. I mean, of course, you were well-positioned because uh, you had great operational experience and network, right? So the credibility, but it's still challenging. I mean, you're still asking people for money 
Yep. Right. Can you talk about those challenges of launching a fund in 2012? I think one of the other challenges were we're clearly on the cutting edge of this wave that we've seen of sort of specialized managers. So we were we weren't just doing VC, we were doing something very specific. And in fact, went to have a conversation with another very well-known VC who basically said we were idiots. The the space wasn't big enough to require having, you know, a dedicated pool of capital to go after. And of course, we thought that was wrong. I mean, if you look at any part of the world that you want to land in, you'll see that fintech represents you know, somewhere around 20% of GDP, which strikes what struck Brooks and myself as being plenty of opportunity to go after and, and build some really big and, and important businesses. And so going out and actually telling that story to LPs that were more familiar in chatting to people who were generalist investors was was probably one of the first hurdles that we had to overcome. We would joke, you know, coming out of some meetings that people would look at us as a, a strange animal that had come out of a tree. And it's like, you know, that looks interesting, but what is it? And, and we, we'd have a laugh. So I think this, you know, I think we were, in some instances, we, we started in exactly the right time. You know, four years post-crisis, 2012, we were really one of the very, very small group of people who were telling a coherent story at that time around this thesis. But it also was tough to educate people around why this was going to be important and convince people, as you said, to, to give us their money. Yeah, I think that you know a lot of people ask about sourcing and deal flow and having been operators and so intimately involved in the space, that, that came very quickly and easily. It was very high quality. But asking somebody for money, no matter what the size, is a thing that's very specific. And that was by far the most difficult part of this. We had not been investors. We had been very successful operators. And no matter how many times you made the analogy that as an operator, when you know, you're making a decision to go pursue one opportunity versus another, it's a little bit like the dealer coming around and saying, Annie, up and, and you're all in from day one. And, and there's so much selection that goes into you know, deciding you're going to do that and the loss, the opportunity cost of your time in choosing to be all in on, on one company. So we deeply believed that we had the skill set to be investors, but we hadn't been investors. And so, so that, was, that was hard. But I think it became easier as we started to put risk capital to work and people were able to see the types of founders we were backing. People were able to see the opportunity sets that, you know, had, had been just words a few months before, but were now actually becoming reality. And so as we built that initial cohort of companies, some of whom are extremely well-known today, we're talking about you know, people like Moneyline, for example. You know, we led their seed round when it was a deck, and it was Dee and some of his co-founders. We met Lowell, who was studying Quovo, which ultimately has become part of Platt. And at the time, People were just horrified that we invested in, in Lowell and Quovo because the analogy of what well, the, the only other analog they had to point to was, you know, by all accounts that had sold to Morningstar for about 34 million bucks. And it was like, guys, that's not venture scale. And we had a different point of view. And now I think it's a point of view that with Plaid, obviously catching everyone's attention first time around being acquired by Visa, but capturing everyone else's attention again five minutes ago by breaking up from Visa. Again, I think that that early thesis that we had about the future infrastructure that needed to be built or the infrastructure that needed to be built for the future of finance is, is now a reality. So 
as I think people started to see that portfolio construction, the type of individuals we were backing, of course, it became easier. Let's talk about that, right? Because you started with a certain approach to finding portfolio companies. And I'm wondering whether that approach has evolved as you've grown the portfolio or has it pretty much stayed the same? Yeah. So if you look at the sourcing and the source of introduction for the companies that we've invested in, in developed markets, 100% of those companies have been referred into us. So that network in, ends up being a very good qualifier of talent into the firm. I think one of the things that we did, which took discipline at the time, and we're now benefiting from today is a lot of firms when they set up an early stage fund will reserve a portion of it and invest in later growth stage rounds. And there's a benefit to that, which is you get your name attached to companies that are closer to points of liquidity. We maintain full discipline to investing in early stage companies. So 80% of our checks in fund one were into pre-revenue companies. We've had five exits out of that fund and 100% of the remaining companies are active over 90% are generating more than a million dollars a year of revenue. But the implication of having discipline to what our the thesis was that we were telling our investors is that it just takes a while for your name to get out there and your companies to get recognized. We're starting to benefit from that significantly. Quovo being acquired by Plaid, Plaid being acquired for a little while by Visa. <laughs> we can come back to that has really been a slingshot for the awareness of the firm and the brand. I think the other thing that that we did that has ended up being just an incredible asset to us and our portfolio companies was decide very, very early on what our voice in the industry and in the community was going to be, and, and that's the newsletter. So over coming up on seven years ago, so in end of March 2014, we've published our first weekly newsletter. And it comes out at 2 o'clock in the morning on Saturday morning, Eastern time. So it hits, if you're in UK or continental Europe, it hits over coffee. People are like, why are you sending this out on Saturday morning? We're like, well, they're not getting any other emails on Saturday morning. Why wouldn't we? And it's just been an incredible asset for us. I think we still think of it in, in beta. We haven't done anything to market it or brand it today. It's grown from 80 subscribers initially to 12,500. We have 32% week over week open rate. And that's been a real, real asset to us that's, that's paid dividend as, as we get, you know, coming up on a decade of, of doing this. Yeah, I was, that was going to be one of my questions. And now the field of newsletters in fintech is really crowded, although it's a big field. But your newsletter is a good summary of what happened in the week. And I subscribe to it and I've recommended to people who are trying to get a pulse of the industry. So Miguel, you're a good man. For doing that. <laughs> it's, it's a labor of love. And I must say it does lighten, it lightens the week, the editorial process with the team around, okay, what's the theme? And then of course, once we've got the theme, what's the GIF? What's the GIF going to be um, to go into that? So we definitely like to inform, but there's a little bit of, we like to have a bit of fun as well. If there's something I understand is, uh, Media being a labor of love. Uh, trust me, I get that. Yes. <laughs> no, fantastic. And so talking about the industry specifically, right, what are some of the highlights that you'd like to mention maybe over the last nine years since you started investing? I mean, the industry not only has grown, but 
you know, it's, uh, it's become much more dynamic, more talent, everything moves faster. We'd love to hear your perspective. Yeah, I think the talent one is an interesting point that you bring up and something that was missing in the UK for a long time and, and indeed parts of Europe. I was, that's where Brooks and I met in London in the late 90s. The business that we were building was called Multex. It was venture-backed, actually, small world. It was a Fred Wilson investment back in the day for him. And we were, from the age of 27, schooled in the art of venture building. What does it take to go build a business that can effectively exit on the public markets? And we saw that from brick one, almost, all the way through IPO, as Brooks said, even with the delight of being an officer of a publicly traded company for Brooks. And it's only now, because it's only now that we're seeing that sort of venture building talent appear in the UK, because after the dot-com bust, a lot of the venture money retreated back to the US. And so there just wasn't the sort of the innovation capital available in the UK and certainly parts of Europe to really go after that. And then we started to see that flow back in post-crisis. And today we're backing founders who have grown up in businesses like Klarna and Spotify and Adyen and some of the other big sort of fintech brands that might not have reached full liquidity, but certainly have reached some level of scale. And those founders are coming out with a very specific problem that they want to go solve. You know, we've been able to go and back some of that talent. And so a good example or a good couple of good examples of that would be Anyfin in Stockholm, which, you know, if you uninitiated in the world of unsecured consumer credit in Europe, and certainly non-Anglo-Saxon Europe, most of that credit is priced on a one-size-fits-all basis. There is no risk-based pricing for consumer credit under 10K. And so Anything has been able to come in, allows a consumer to snap a picture of their part payment bill or credit card statement. And within seconds, the OCR is ripping all of that data out. They're underwriting that customer and they're able to present back a refinancing offer onto a mobile phone in just a few seconds. And that's been just a phenomenal business to capture the attention of the consumer. And they're now in the process of building some other pretty interesting capabilities around that. And those guys all grew up at Klarna and Spotify and, and iZettle. So actually have that sort of deep understanding of what it takes to go build what will hopefully be a, a multi-billion dollar business. Yeah, and if you look in the US and New York, this fall, we, we backed a stealth stage business in the broadly the accounting and office of the CFO space. Co-founder, the founder and CEO of that business was a co-founder of Peloton and watched that business go through its phase of having investors ask them why on earth this would be a good idea to seeing it eclipse $30 billion in, in the public markets. So this, as people talk about what are the interesting dynamics today, post-COVID? You certainly look at the digital acceleration. We can all feel it, see it. You can certainly see the scale of capital in the space. From a fintech perspective, we think it will have a similar effect that the global financial crisis had in terms of proliferation of companies coming into the market. And one of the new additional ingredients into that is is this point that Gareth has mentioned that we're now a decade into sort of this wave of fintech. And so you've got entrepreneurs, individuals in these companies who have had functional roles, have had a ton of experience, seen things go really well, seen things go terribly, and have a problem or an opportunity that they care about more than anything. 
and are now spinning out to go start companies. And we have a lot of resonance with those types of individuals and are super excited to be meeting some incredible talent today. You mentioned a trend in talent that I've also observed, and that is non-fintech entrepreneurs coming into fintech industry with entrepreneurial experience from other industries. I mean, for example, I'm interviewing the co-founder of Skype, who now leads a very successful fintech in Southeast Asia. So sounds like you've backed some entrepreneurs also that have come into fintech, which is pretty exciting. And speaking of some of your investments, you've always had an appetite for international investments, but sounds like that appetite has, uh, has gotten bigger in the last year or two. Can you talk about venturing out outside of the U.S.? Yeah, I'll, I'll hit it at a high level and then we can talk about some examples. We've had a global mandate since starting the firm. In our very first fund, we had no geographic constraints on where we would deploy capital. We had several companies in Africa in that first fund. And we talk about, at a firm level, we talk about being in the business of rewiring how money moves through the world. If you look at the opportunity sets, there are a bunch of macro and tech factors that we can all see. and you guys are talking about and studying about and highlighting, but they're manifesting themselves very differently in developed markets than developing markets in ways, again, that I think everyone can, can intuit. But I think it'd be fun to kind of canter around and we can share what we're doing. About 35% of our second fund is deployed into companies outside of the US. We have 10 companies operating in Latin America. We have three companies in Africa. We have two companies operating in Asia several companies in the UK and Europe. I do think it's not a new thing for us. I think the talent ingredient is a huge shift. And some of the market conditions have gotten to a point where these ideas are now actionable and the market's catching up. Yeah. And I think also it's important to not forget how the tech stack has matured over the time. So, I mean, even over the last 10 years since we've been investing, it's just accelerated at a pace. To some, it's just blinding. But even before we started FinTech Collective, you know, you cast your mind back to when we got our start, age 27, Brooks and I would go visit CIOs of massive asset managers and sell-side firms all over the world. And there's one lovely story where we went into, I'll keep the name private, but we walked into probably one of the largest mutual funds in Europe based up in Scotland. And they were trying to put the entire firm through a 56K modem. And when you're selling a software, internet-delivered software platform into the enterprise, we actually couldn't show him what we were doing. So we actually had to take him to an internet cafe and explain what this wonderful thing was and how it was going to change his life. And actually, he bought it based on a, a coffee in an internet cafe down the road from his shop. And I think as we've seen that sort of play out over the last 20 plus years, it's the talent piece combined with to some extent, a bit of domain expertise. We do still think that you do need a, a little bit of domain expertise in, in, in this, but it's also watching that talent with the domain expertise armed with a technology stack that Brooks and I would have died for back in the late 90s. We had two data centers in downtown Manhattan that we thought were redundant because they were across the street from each other on different internet grids. And lo and behold, 9-11 essentially took the entirety of downtown with it, and we lost our business for more than a handful of days. That just wouldn't happen today if you were able to swipe a credit card and have access to infinite compute. So I think it's talent, domain expertise, 
and technology that's that's driven a lot of this. One of the big shifts, if you were in and out of Latin America and you know, call it 2005, what you wouldn't have seen was entrepreneurs who had left the region, been educated, worked in the US, Europe, and then gone back into their local markets to build and start these companies, bringing with them the manner of creating and building and doing business that exists in the mature markets. And that's a huge difference to make. But some of the companies, it's kind of fun to talk about. In Africa, we backed a, a business called Flutterwave, helping with the secular shift from cash to card and digital. Really an incredible CEO and founding team and business that's hitting real scale today. I think you'll hear some exciting stuff out of that company this year. In Asia, we're focused on bringing the next half a billion people into the U.S. stock market business based in San Francisco called Parkside allows people to invest five to $50 through a mobile app into the US stock market directly. If you think about that many people, you start thinking about whether that means China and the answer is yes. And there's a bunch of additional nuance there. And we're several years into building a platform to, to make that possible. In Latin America, we're building a real-time payments platform that very quietly and elegantly uses some blockchain capabilities to create a real-time party-to-party payment system, initially in Colombia with the largest financial institutions. We're investing significantly in the digitalization of processes in small and mid-sized businesses, which is an incredible opportunity in that region. And we have several digital banks. So uh, Fundeadora, Oyster in Mexico, Rebel in Brazil, really an extension of the work we've done in the US, UK, and Europe in in the digital banking space. Definitely exciting days and happy to say that we've had GB from Flutterwave on the show, one of our most popular episodes, for sure. (laughs) And thinking about the road ahead and, and the future of fintech in the context of, of course, COVID, which is now dominated the world for about a year, how do you think about fintech going forward? I think this has been a huge accelerant. The pandemic has been just a huge accelerant for the thesis and for the companies that we're backing. I think it's perhaps no surprise that Plaid have decided to go it alone. I think they saw, and it was this is public information from the head of their UK business that you know they saw their customer base grow by sixty percent during COVID, and so have probably taken the decision that go it alone might be a viable option for them. So I think that is probably a good indication of just the acceleration that we're seeing, not just amongst our existing portfolio of 43 companies, but it's also represented, I think, in the talent and the ideas that we're seeing come through the door right now. And of course, they're different ideas, and some of them very different. As you know, Miguel, we, we run a pretty active thesis around decentralized finance and have been investing against that since late 2013, when we seeded. Trade Block and then Axoni, two pretty important businesses now. And that's sort of part of the thesis. That's perhaps bookended most recently by us leading around in a New York based business called NYDIG, which is doing a phenomenal job of really bringing institutional quality custody and asset management capabilities to sit on top of that to the big institutional allocators that perhaps want access to this asset class, but have perhaps been 
scared off historically by just the lack of infrastructure that's led around that. That's a business that has, when we started back in 2012, probably was, those weren't the businesses being built, but, but today they are. So we've definitely seen a, a change in, in companies coming through post-pandemic as well. Great. So let's go back to a comment from Brooks at the beginning, and, and that's uh, your, your role in helping launch the Wharton Fintech Club. So I think most people don't know that, at least within the Wharton community. Yeah, I can't say that we were the founders because neither of us went to Wharton. But, uh, but no, we got introduced to Steve and Daniel, Steve Wiener and Daniel McCauley, probably mid-2014, Brooks. Yeah, they were, as we were, paying quite a bit of attention to this space, but as MBA candidates and approached us to actually see whether or not we could help them organize a road trip for you guys up to New York and put them in front of a few fintech CEOs. And that's what we did. And I think we even paid for their beers as well. We even gave them like a, a beer <laughs> stipend. Most importantly. Yeah, most importantly. And that was, I think that was the first road trip that you did. I was looking at the agenda last night that they pulled together and it was a few names that exist today and a few names that no longer exist. So they got a full, a full exposure to the trials and tribulations of early stage. So kind of fun to have that connection to you guys. Amazing. And they're still involved and we chat often. So they're still uh, an important part. Has Steve ever shown you the picture of him standing outside his submarine that just cracked through the ice in the North Pole? (laughs) No, but now now I will. I think that's when when Brooks and I realized that we were talking to someone who was was extraordinary. (laughs) No, we asked him him what the longest amount of time was that he was under the surface. And I think it was like... Oh, it was something years. ludicrous. No, it was like six months or something. It was nuts. Yeah. I mean, it must have, stunk, must have stunk when you opened the uh, door. Yeah, who knows? <laughs> <laughs> we asked him where, and of course, he wouldn't disclose that. But terrible <laughs> guy. And Wharton's well represented in the shop. As you know, Carlos joined the team in the summer of 2019 and joined us full-time mid-last year. So, Fantastic. Fantastic. No, absolutely. Great. So before we let you go, Brooks and Garrett, we always like to talk a bit about your hobbies, right? And Garrett, you mentioned a little bit about Antarctica. I think uh, maybe we can fit that story or (laughs) maybe that's not a hobby anymore going out to Antarctica, but we'd love to hear about your personal side outside of FinTech Collective. Gosh, there is still a little bit of sailing here and there. It's certainly not high latitude with a family now involved. That, was, that all happened in my early 20s. I was extremely fortunate to be able to do that when I, I didn't really have a, a care or responsibility in the world. But um, today it's making sure that teenagers don't go off the rails during COVID. That's kind of my hobby uh, right now. Yeah, we're, we're an all-girl all shop. Gareth has two daughters. I have two daughters. Um, that is consuming. I picked up a, a Labrador at the beginning of COVID when we were in Utah, which has been an amazing turn. Fantastic. Well, Brooks and Gareth, again, can't thank you enough for joining us and for always supporting the the Wharton community. Uh, Next time we'll have to be in person on campus for future generations. Love to. They will love to see you, but thank you again. Cheers, Miguel. Thanks, Miguel. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wharton Fintech Podcast. 
If you like the show, please consider leaving us a review or letting us know in the comments. It means a lot and helps spread the word to more listeners. If you want more content from our fintech community, please subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and the rest of social media at Wharton Fintech. You will find interviews, articles, videos, and much more analyzing all aspects of the industry. We also want to extend a special thank you to our show editor, Rafael Ostria. Signing off, I'm your host, Miguel Armaza.